Oh, hold on here. This is a rookie move. I can't find my sound effect. I'm going to have to edit that out. One, two, three, four. Calvary Cast listeners, what's up? It's episode 108 coming at you on a Wednesday afternoon. I am Graham and he is Jess and we are back. We are back. We are back. As usual, take a little bit of breaks, but then we come back and... This, I mean, this is a hot topic we're going to get on today. So we've been prepping a little bit for That's it. That's right. But first, should we give a shout out to our new listeners in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa? Thank you. Yeah. How many downloads from that? I don't know. They blew it up. Somebody went from Council Bluffs and I think hit every track. So I'm not much of a fan of Iowa, but Council Bluffs, you're probably a spam bot. But if you aren't, <laughs> give us a shout out. And we. Uh, That'd be great to hear if it's a real person if it's and they're <laughs> listening now. Oh, or I, my count is a listen if they go and just click on every single track and it plays for two seconds and it just mm-hmm. counts as a listen. That's yeah. okay. There you go. But Council Bluffs, Iowa. I have a reason to like Iowa. I know some nice people in Iowa. My brother lives in Iowa. I'm sure there's many nice people in Iowa. But Iowa as a state is... Right. Especially their flagship university and their football program. Oh, I see the, where this is all coming from. This As despising a, of Iowa. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like uh, it's a football related, and as a Nebraska fan, like I used to think the same way about Colorado because hmm. Colorado was our big rival. Although we always smoked them, but just don't like. Yeah, you know, there's still parts of Colorado actually I don't like. Really? Are they? There are. I'm assuming they're political. Politically, right? yeah. yeah. Okay. So. As, I mean, I could live here forever, and I probably would always be like, yeah, this state, it's pretty. It is pretty. But it's got some stupidity. Yeah, and it's hard to travel from the west uh, western slope where we are. It is, because you always got to go through the mountains. Oh, right, right, right. go, and you're four or five hours from the nearest city, like real city. So yeah, it's got its issues, but that's good. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway. Oh, we're talking about our book of the month. Book of the month. Book of the month is Ten Ways God is not like us and why that's, that's a good thing. Chain. None no. like him. Yeah, I guess that's Yes. That's not, but it is Ten Ways God is not like us, right? right? You said the subtitle before you yeah. said the title, which is right. so confusing. It's like Because it caught me off guard and once again I do not have the book in front of me. Jen we, Wilkin. Do you think though. have we never podcasted before? It's almost like the first time. I'm nervous right now. I know. It's been a couple of weeks. So, yeah. But that w- this book by Jen Wilkin is a book about God's unique attributes that are unique to him that we do not share with him, like his omnipresence and his omniscience and such. And she doesn't just explain those, but she explains why it's really awesome that he's the way he is and how it's supposed to build our faith and our relationship with him. So I really enjoyed it. And it's an easy read, and it's not very long. Uh, it was originally written for women. Uh, How do you know it was originally written? For it was a woman's book uh, for women's ministry book. Oh, from what I understood. Oh, okay. And I mean, it is kind of a flowery cover, I guess. Yeah, it's a flowery cover, and she does mainly women's ministry. And some of the things she says in there, she directs it towards the women. But I thoroughly enjoyed it, and so we recommended it, and I think it's good. Okay. So pick up a copy at your local church bookstore. That's right. Run, don't walk. It's We actually, this is a little tip for people that come to Calvary. You will get a 
steep discount on it here versus if you go buy it at Amazon. I think we mm. got it for something like five or six bucks. Right. We'll pull a few little strings, got some deals on it. So check it out. Yep. And if you can't afford it, you can just take one. That is two. True. And that's about as deep as discount as you're going to get free. And it won't be stealing. No. And, and you don't even need to feel bad about it. No. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, good. Uh, I, I, we could have a new segment here. Listener feedback. Do we actually have listener feedback today? We got an email Uh-oh. from our only <laughs> feedback listener. Okay, now, I'm not going to read the name of this person because you already know who it is. I know who it and is. And he wants me to read the name of the thing, but I'm not going to give him the pleasure of that. Right? Oh, no. What's he saying? Uh, he just... Uh, Am I really discouraged here? No, 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 no. Uh, I'm not even sure. Basically, the end of the email said, what are the odds you read my email on the air? You never get emails after all. So I read that part of it. Uh, he's just saying that he liked our episode 106. Nice. Defining foreknowledge is found in the golden chain in Romans 8.29. You both did a great job, and I simply just wanted to add that Jeremiah 1 does a great job of defining foreknowledge for us. Yep. So... Yeah. There we go. Some listener feedback. If you send us feedback, you might get it read on this new segment, which I just created right now. There we go. All right. And it's time for... Topic of the day, which is... Well, we... Okay. <laughs> no, we are talking about, you know. <laughs> but we should preface on the whole thing. Like we're talking about, remember, Lim- yeah, well, yeah the, we're talking about the doctrines of grace. Right. Today though, we are talking about limited atonement. A, a so-called limited so-called atonement. limited atonement. We'll talk about um, other things. The L and Tulip. And if you're just joining in today, you got to go back a few episodes and listen to the intro to all of these. Yeah, there's three other ones now. There's an introduction to the doctrines of grace, the one on total depravity, one on unconditional election. And now this is the fourth one. Yeah, okay. Now, I thought it was about something this morning that I wanted to talk about before we jump into the particulars of this topic. Okay. So it's kind of like one of my sermons where before I get into the particulars, I like to do two sermons leading up to the particulars of the passage, like giving generalities. But anyway, I thought about this because when we're talking about these doctrines of grace, we've admitted that these are controversial. Yes. Uh, last time, um, especially this point. Yeah. Last time was unconditional election. Right. And so total depravity, unconditional election right there. You've got some controversy. They're high, they're heavily divisive topics. And, um, I wanted to make something clear and, and that is this, I have always believed from the time I was saved, I believed these doctrines. So for me, did you know, know that I, I knew it. Could you have articulated that? I think very quickly in like Mm -hmm. very quick, like not maybe the day of, but I would have had some understanding of it because remember I grew up in a church true that taught these doctrines, the doctrines of grace. And so I could not obviously do what I could do now and speak about them freely. But I had, I, I had some understanding, but then more importantly, it, these things were very instinctual to me from the beginning. Like 
I knew I rejected God. And if he wouldn't have done all this work for me and in me, then nothing would happen, that kind of thing. But the reason I'm saying that is because I heard the story of a, of a church and uh, I was talking to this guy that went to this church and um, there was a big blow up and this was years ago that this happened and there was a big blow up in the church because all of a sudden the pastor who had been pastoring there for a while comes to an understanding of the doctrines of grace. Yeah. So his views changed and, and it was like, now he's all of a sudden getting up there every week and he's talking about election. He's talking about limited atonement. He's talking about all these things and quoting from people like mm-hmm. authors and Calvin and everything else. And uh, that caused a problem in, in the church because it was all new and this pastor mm-hmm. was all new at that particular, in that particular doctrine. And I thought about it, it's important to understand that like this is nothing new mm-hmm. for me, for you, for honestly, most of these for our church, perhaps with the exception of today's topic where it isn't uh, emphasized much in our doctrinal statement or defined very clearly in our Mm -hmm. doctrine. But everything else is, this is, this is nothing new for us. And um, when I, 12 years ago now, this summer, this month, really, I began talking to the elders of Calvary Bible at that time about, you know, they had the open pastorate and mm-hmm. we, we were talking about it, a uh, pastoral position. And I made it clear from that point mm-hmm. where I stood on this mm-hmm. and gave them my doctrinal statement, which is rooted in um, God's grace and unconditional election. So uh, my section on soteriology, salvation. And so I've been very clear on this throughout the years. My, I've not changed or altered my opinion on this though there may be other things doctrinally I have shifted somewhat or see things a little differently. And I don't know, to me, that's just important to emphasize right. that, um, that this isn't us just now all of a sudden new to this. And it's you know, not that, that pastor you referenced, he's what we would affectionately call a cage stager. Yes. Yeah. Casey Calvinists are always fighting for it, but he's just so excited about right. what he sees and he's teaching his flock. And I'm sure he did just fine at doing right. that. But it was, it was like all of a sudden the pastor came up with something new. Right. Everybody at our church should understand this is not new. And right. if you've been here, you should know where my position has always been in preaching on things like uh, unconditional election and, you know, really what we're going to talk about today. Your sermon last Sunday, you made a pretty clear point on it, actually. Yeah. Well, I don't remember what it was, but yeah, <laughs> and it and it's that that's because um, it, it's it's an important. These are important because people do decide, hey, I can't stay at a church because of this, or they will go try to find a church that teaches the doctrines of grace. Because when you start seeing these things in the scriptures, you can't unsee them, yep. and then viewing it the other way is a completely different way of viewing it. Yeah. So that I just wanted to bring that out for uh, anybody listening or people. This has just been a consistent right. um, doctrine that we've held and, and that our church historically has been moderately, mm-hmm. you know, uh, adhering to the doctrines of grace, um, at least four of them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so anyway, that's where we're at. Well, that leads well then into today's topic because this is the point where people often deviate, right? They'll hold to total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. But when it comes to limited atonement or 
definite atonement or particular redemption, yep. they say no. They yeah. are, uh, as R.C. Sproul called them, uh, Christmas Calvinists. Yeah. Noel. Noel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have played it. Oh, yeah, that would have been great. Anyway. That, um, that's true. As a matter of fact, well, to, what we're talking about, limited atonement, is, is just answering the question, for whom did Christ right. die? So, uh, in the if I'm if I'm understanding my Baptist history correctly, in the 17th century there was a division between all Baptists between General Baptist and Particular Baptist. You were either a General Baptist or a Particular Baptist. A General Baptist believed that Christ died for every single human being. They uh, we'll talk about that. And in uh, a uh, uh, General and what's the other one? Did I just say Particular Particular Baptist believed that no Christ died for the sins of his people or the elect mm. only. And um and so yeah, it's always this has been a dividing point for right. um for people here. So we'll do our best just to kind of give a very brief introduction to Yeah, this could be like a three part podcast all on right. its own, but we'll try to keep it reasonable. So Should let's lay out the arguments, huh? Should we do that? Start yes. with the, yes. the Armenian position, because remember the historical setting of all of this is uh in the Netherlands, the can the uh, uh, count, uh canons of Dort mm-hmm. and the response to this group of people Anyway, the Arminian position, the followers of Jacobus Arminius, stated, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men, uh, for every man, so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross redemption and the forgiveness of sins, yet no one actually enjoys the forgiveness of sins except the believer. So that is the position held by the Arminians. In response to that, in the canons of Dort, the Calvinist position was, it is that speaking about the uh, work of Christ on the cross, the belief that the satisfaction renewed by Christ, that might be a typo, by Christ on the cross was of infinite value and worth by virtue of Christ's incarnation, but that its intended object was not sinners in general or every individual, but rather those whom God had elected from eternity. Yeah, and so right there we should make sure that everybody understands neither side is arguing that Christ's atonement is not sufficient for the whole world. Right. Like we're not, nobody's diminishing its quality. Right. right? Would that be a right way to put it? Or uh, it's sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And I think that that helps us then say, that's why w- the offer to the gospel is valid. Yes. And genuine to everyone. You yes. can go to any person and say, if you will repent and trust in right. Christ, you can be forgiven. Right. His cross is sufficient right. for co- to cover your sins. Right. Which is an objection made by Arminians to the particular redemption, right? right? Well, how can you have a free, a true offer of the gospel if Christ didn't die for them? Yeah. Nobody's questioning, nobody has nobody's, ever questioned the right. sufficiency of it right. to cover anyone's right. sins that right. will trust in Christ. The question is... Though, well, one of the questions is, for whom was it intended? Right. The design of the, the cross. The design of the cross, right. Right. And this is, what, yeah, what was God's intent? Who did he intend to save? Or, or maybe to phrase it even more clearly, did the cross make salvation possible, which mm-hmm. would be the Arminian position, mm-hmm. or did it make it actual for some? So right. possible for all right. or actual for some? Yeah. 
Is the cross going to be effective for what it was intended? Right. The other important thing to talk about here at the beginning, because when we talk about the phrase limited atonement, right, Mm -hmm. and and a lot of people just reject, like, don't like that terminology, and it's not the best, right? Right. That's why we like the phrase particular redemption better. Mm -hmm. But as people have pointed out, everybody limits the atonement, right? The Arminian limits the atonement, and the Calvinist limits the atonement, and it's either limiting it in its extent Mm -hmm. or, or its effect. That's right. That's important. That's an important point to make because, you know, that 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 term limited does it it can imply to in some people's minds like you have just diminished the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, No, but both sides limit the atonement, like you said. So the other point I want to make before we move on to the biblical support for it and things like that is a moment about the logic of it, right? We were talking Mm -hmm. about this the other day because I have heard people say, well, like the doctrines of grace, they're logical, but Mm -hmm. they're not biblical. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. Like all theological systems have to have an element of logic and coherence to them. Otherwise they would just fall apart, right? And so, yes, there is a logic, right? If you accept total depravity, see that in the scriptures, you accept unconditional election, that would logically lead to a conclusion of a particular redemption. Yeah. Uh, the same way, if you reject <laughs> the total depravity and mm-hmm. you think there is prevenient grace within person or uh, a conditional election, mm-hmm. or then that would lead to, yeah, a universal atonement yes. or things like that. So just because something is logical doesn't mean we throw it out. The question, though, is is the text there to support it? Yeah, well, let's think about the logic of this for a second okay. on both sides. So let's think about, so what we've already covered is that uh, is total depravity meaning you know people aren't as bad always as they could be but that they are they're ruined by the fall right. and every element of them they're under sin and they're enslaved sin all those things and unable to respond to the call of the gospel that's right so what god did is chose unconditionally people uh, he did this before the foundation of the world by his grace just to set his grace upon and to save now, when we get to this third per- this third point here on the work of Christ, then where Lot, what if you were just to think about that, God chose some before the foundation world to save. Logically, who would you think then Jesus was dying for? Right. If God had no plan or purpose to save everyone else other than the elect, then logically speaking, and I'm not saying that's where we no. draw our theological collusion. No. I'm just saying, hey, let's talk about this logically for a minute. If I was just, uh, or if I were just a person off the street and you were explaining these things to me step by step and you got through unconditional election, I said, okay, now Christ comes and dies for sins. Whose sins do you think he died for? Who did God plan to save? The elect. The elect, right? It would just be a natural, logical rational conclusion mm-hmm. that you would draw. Right. And um, otherwise, it, what you have is within the persons of the Trinity, they're, they're almost at odds with each yes. other. So you have the Father choosing some, but you have the Son dying for all, and then the Spirit only applying the work of Christ to the Son, because who is he going to call? Those he foreknew, those he... Uh, those that he's going to call the ones that were chosen. Right. So you've got that on either side of that, but now Christ is dying for the sins of everybody somehow. Right. 
and for some reason, which doesn't make any logical sense. Right. But I'm not, and again, there are certain things in scripture, I get it, that we say, we see what it says and we're like, that doesn't doesn't make sense to us. But this is one of those things that it is really, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it puts the members of the Trinity at odds with one another in their work. Instead of working singularity with one will and one purpose as the one triune God. Right. Uh, it is actually one's doing one thing, the other's doing this other thing, and the third is doing something else. I mean, it's putting them at odds with each yeah. other. So there's logic to it, but that's not our, our only conclusion. Is there biblical support for it? What does the Bible say? I think there is. Where do you want to start? Let's let's start with one verse. Okay. Okay. Um, Matthew one twenty one. Where Jesus is being named, and he's given that name, uh, Yeshua, Mm -hmm. Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation, and he's given that name because it says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay. Whenever, when the Bible talks about this, the, the redeeming, saving, work of Christ, including the cross, it talks about spec- it, it, it talks about it in specific terms for specific people and with the understanding that he will accomplish this. Right. That goes to the sufficiency aspect, right? It is That's sufficient right. and holy for those who trust in Christ. Yeah, it will be effective for mm-hmm. those who trust in Christ right. and who That's are those who trust in Christ are the elect. Yeah. And it's very clear he's here to save a particular group of people. And the angel says it's his people. Hmm. Now, in John's gospel, of course, you get the phrase Jesus uses, the ones the Father has given to me. You connect that with Ephesians 1 like we did last time, um, that these are ones that God chose before the foundation of the world in Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you have that kind of, specificity mm-hmm. in, in who's he's coming to save and that he will effectively save them. Mm-hmm. So his work, both in life and death and resurrection, will be effective for them. They will be saved, and they are his people already. Yeah. That's who he's here for. Yeah. Uh, another passage, while we're talking about predictive passages, right? Mm-hmm. I think you go back to Isaiah 53, and there's two verses in that passage that point forward to the nature of his work, right? Isaiah 53, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, living, stricken for the transgression of who? My people. Yeah. Right? There's a specific specificity to whom he is cut off for. Right. Not general. It seems specific. And then also verse 11 out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And I think the question there is, what does he see and what is he satisfied by? Right? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, not all, and he shall bear their iniquities. Yeah. Right? So I think those, even before Jesus comes, it's looking yes. forward to what, this This speaks to the intent and design. Yeah. And the whole purpose of Isaiah 53 is to, is the, uh, to prophesy about the actual cross yes, and him bearing the sins of his people and that he will see that cross have its effect in the lives of his people. Exactly. 
he'll be satisfied by it because it accomplishes the work he intends to do for his own. Yeah. I think another convincing verse is Ephesians 5.25. Okay. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So even in this verse, Ephesians 5.25, if you were to answer the question, the big question of limited atonement or a particular atonement is, for whom did Christ die? Who, for whom did Christ give himself up? And, the, and that is clear. The church, his bride. Okay. Now, would some counter that and say, well, yeah, the church and, and is made up of all of those who believe in Christ, but it's they'll, because they deny the doctrine of election— Right, they they almost say that it's not entirely knowable who that is until they believe. Mm-hmm. Would that be a way they'd counter that? They might, but that is a pretty, in my opinion, that's a pretty loose argument to come right. back at. Again, it's a very there's a specificity here that's of yes. for whom he's giving himself up for. It is his bride, right? And it would also be ignoring passages that we're about to get into mm-hmm. that show very clearly Jesus knew. Yeah those who were going to comprise yeah. his bride. He knew who his people were. Yeah. This is very important. Even when you're reading through the gospels to understand and you'll be so blessed and encouraged to know that you were known by God in Christ way before you were ever born yeah. and in the work of Christ. And when he is here, he's here for his people. Yeah. What he's doing, he's doing for us, not just the world generically, in the world generally, but his chosen people specifically. And, and I, I think in that way you're reading it and it's so in those gospel accounts is so encouraging. You're like rooting Jesus on because he's there doing this for you. Yeah. You know, and to say that to, to just say that to someone out in the world that doesn't believe in Jesus to say he was doing this for you, mm. I think is really dangerous. Yeah. Because if you're wrong about your view of the atonement and for whom Christ died, if you're wrong about that, you're misrepresenting what Christ did yeah. and his work. Yep. And um, so at any rate, uh, th- these are texts of specificity. Yeah. I keep saying that word because I, I think each time I say it, it's going to get easier, but it's harder <laughs> each time. So. Uh, I'm going to throw one more out here before I, we go where I think you're going to go next. Uh, and I thought this is this is an interesting one that one of the books I was reading through pointed to Hebrews twelve two, which says, "Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy uh, endured the cross and despised the shame." And the question he asks is, "How could Jesus endure the cross if he didn't know that it was going to be effective for salvation for those whom the Father had given to him?" Yeah, right, right. And because, and and we'll probably talk on this a little bit more though, in that Arminian view. If it's a general atonement, right, that it's the same for everybody and he didn't die specifically for specific people, there is the chance that everybody could reject it, mm-hmm. right? right yeah. And so Jesus, could he go with that same joy? Because would it be effective? Right. Question to ask. Right. I'll leave it there. Well, good. Now let's look at John 10 because I think this is one of the most the, this is the most convincing yes uh, passage of scripture verses that i have yet to hear a satisfactory answer to these questions from somebody who denies yes um 
the hematoma. So we'll look at these, and then uh, there's just a couple more things we were going to talk about, like the effectiveness that is promised through the cross, mm-hmm. like propitiation and other yes. things, right? Yep. So, okay, John chapter 10. First of all, I'm just going to read some of the verses here. Like in verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay. So I think the lays down the lays down his life, I think, is clearly a reference to the cross. And for whom does Christ lay down his life? The sheep. Yep. So once again here, you have very specific language. Jesus knowing this, but now it gets even more detailed a few verses down in John 10. So now you're in John 10, verse 14. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My own what? The sheep, because I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep and I know my sheep and they know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and here it is, I lay down my life for the sheep. Yeah. So the question would be, does Christ, as Christ goes to the cross and he's seeing himself as the good shepherd, does he know the sheep for whom he's about to lay down his life? Absolutely. According to John 10, yes. Yeah, in a very intimate way. The way the Father knows me and I know the Father. Yeah. This, is, this is an intimate relationship he has with the sheep. And then somebody might say, well, yeah, but he's just talking about the, the 11 disciples there minus mm. Judas, right? There are 12 minus Judas. Hold on. Yeah, hold on, because in verse 16 he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I think everybody agrees that he's referring there to Gentiles hmm. who up to this point in his life were not invited into his ministry they didn't have the fullness of the gospel because he hadn't even died for sins. The door to the Gentiles with the gospel had not been opened. So he's referring to, to Gentiles who are not of the house of Israel, um, and they're not of this fold, so to speak. But So that means he knows, I have, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I know who they are, and I know them, and they they're going to know me because I, I'm going to bring them in also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's a foreshadowing of the church where there is one flock, Jew and Gentile together now, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Um, you know, and he is the one shepherd who knows us all and lays down his life for the sheep. But he goes on in verse 25, and later on in the text, some people are arguing with him, you know, about things, and Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. So they're not believing in him. Some of these people are not believing in him. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So it's clear that I am who I am, or who I say I am. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, he can say that to them, you're not among my sheep, because he's already said, I know my sheep. I know who they are. I know their name. I know the ones who are going to become my sheep. I'm going to bring them in too. They're my sheep. But you are not my sheep. And you'll notice how he phrases it. You do not believe because you are not Mm. my sheep. Mm. In other words, if you were my sheep, you'd believe. Yeah. You wouldn't become a sheep by believing. 
because I have sheep who are not of this fold. They're going to believe. They're going to listen to my voice. That's just going to happen. That's the way salvation works. This is Mm. guaranteed, right? So, so he's like, you, it's not like, he's not saying to them, if you would just believe you could become my sheep, he's saying you're not among my sheep and therefore you do not believe. And in verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if somebody were to say to me, um, Jesus laid down his life for everybody in the world, I'd say, okay, but we at least have to eliminate out of that category of people the Jews that were standing before him in John 10, and he literally said yeah. to them, you're not my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Yeah. So he can't be laying down his life for them when he's very clearly saying. He's not. That yeah. I'm not laying down my life for you, essentially. He yeah. could have said that, and it would have been saying the same thing. Yeah. If he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, you're not my sheep, is the same thing as, as saying it you know, the other way. You're not my sheep, and I'm not laying down my life for you. I'm laying down the life for my sheep. And again, in John, in the rest of John's gospel, who his sheep are really are clarified in this one phrase, the ones the father has given to him. Yeah. Right. So, so to me, I, and like I said, I have yet to hear a, an explanation of this passage that isn't having to get super creative and, um, you know, using a lot of imagination to make it say something he's <laughs> right. clearly yeah. here saying. If if the question to the atonement and is for whom is Christ dying, he makes it very clear, the sheep. Yeah. Uh, some Jews, some Gentiles. Yeah. And the, the, he knows who they are. Yeah. And they will come to know who they are yep. because when he calls them, and we'll get into effectual calling, yep. when that call goes out, yeah, and that grace is operative, that irresistible grace, then they are going to listen to his voice and they're going to follow him. Yeah. No, I, it's so clear from the text that that's what's going on. And not only is it clear from that passage and all the other ones, but I think this is where we'll, well, I don't know if we'll end here or not, but if you think about all the other phrases that the Bible uses to talk about what the cross has achieved, how again, you have to go, how could this be for everyone in the same way? That's right. right. Phrases like redemption. That's right. Propitiation. Yeah. Atonement. Yeah. And reconciliation. Right. I think those, I don't know. Is there another one that you'd add to those four? Uh, did you say propitiation? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah, then no. Because if you think about it, those are the ones where when the when the Bible talks about the cross work past the Gospels, and you're talking about now in Paul's letters mainly, Peter's yeah. letters. If you think about it, how could these things how could the cross have achieved um, redemption, the purchase out of a slave market? Right. For everyone. For everyone, and everyone not get purchased out of the slave market. And if you want to attach, well, they have to believe in order to get this, now all of a sudden you've introduced something to, you've got a number of issues. First of all, God is sovereign, just not over salvation. Yes. Because the sovereign decision has to be within... The person that's the person responding. itself. That's why some people talk about the Armenian definition of like it's a bridge that goes part way but not all the way to the other side, right? Yeah. Like he's done most everything, but right. you gotta finish the bridge to get to God. Yeah. And then what has happened these words 
uh, and this, I get this from Dr. Uh, Venema. He wrote this book, but for the grace of God, these terms like redemption or um, propitiation that the Bible speaks about as something very specifically flowing from the cross, they become meaningless mm. if he really didn't secure these things for uh, he did, but he didn't. So somehow he, 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 he secured them for every single person. But then when that person doesn't believe he didn't secure, it, it wasn't yeah. secured. So yeah. where did it go? Yeah. And, and so the idea is these words take, they have no meaning right. anymore. They're meaningless. Right. And, and the cross is, uh, limited in its ability yeah. to, uh, affect what it was designed to do to bring right. redemption, to bring the, it's, it's powerless to do that right. now. And, um, and I, I fear that sometimes people that uh, believe in a, in this general atonement, they really fail to think that through. Yeah. Because when I've d- d- discussed this with people that, and I've brought some of these things up, they've never really, they haven't wrestled mm-hmm. with that enough. Well, and that's what, like we were just talking about, right? Redemption purchased out of the slave market of sin. Propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath. Right. Right, if God's wrath is satisfied against a sinner, then they would be, they would avert the wrath of God, right? Yes. <laughs> Atonement, a covering of sin. Yep. But yet, if that's if that's happened for all people, then why yep. do some go to hell? Well, Paul defines redemption in Ephesians one as a forgiveness of sins. Right. That comes through the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ. Right. But somehow, and you brought this up earlier, in that idea of the forgiveness of sin, that it covers all sins except the unbelief of that person. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's like. If it secure, if it if it paid for their sin, it should cover their unbelief, mm. right? So again, we've got scripture, and you also have some logic, and you combine those two, and it's pretty convincing right. me. Right. But the propitiation one is big. Ephesians three talks about God put forth Christ as a propitiation by His blood, and the word propitiation here uh, has reference to the appeasing of wrath. Because it's all in the context of Romans 1 through 3 with the wrath of God. And the interesting thing about that is if 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 God accepted Christ's sacrifice of propitiation for sins, and that's for the whole world, then why are where is God's wrath coming from then? Right? Right. In Revelation as an example, the yeah. day of the wrath of God has come. Or how can there be any wrath left over for anybody? Yeah. I think if you if you accept a a universal atonement, then really you need to go the whole way with it, which is has some have, and this is heretical, but the the whole way with it is everybody does get saved in the right. end. Yeah. Because it the cross work of Christ is unlimited mm-hmm. in its scope. Right. Right. And so everybody in the end gets saved because all of those terms that Paul uses and Peter use to apply to us as Christians, if it was for everybody, it has to apply for everybody. Right. And I think like brothers and sisters in Christ that like, I mean, even in our church that wouldn't would struggle with this doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. To a degree. They don't go to universalism because right. we see that clearly not in the scriptures. And what we're trying to say is like, but we do see this definite atonement, particular redemption in the scriptures, mm-hmm. and it magnifies the cross even more than, yeah. than you know, extending it to everyone, which I think is born out of a, uh, 
like a, a, a genuine desire for the gospel to go forth and yes, share the gospel yes. and love for people and desire to people desire for people to be saved. And you can have that. And I think in many ways, and uh, you should have that when you see a particular redemption, right? It's just, it, it clarifies even more what's going on. Yeah. And so how we were going to end with how this can be encouraging to right. us, right? If yes. you accept this doctrine, how is it encouraging and right. not discouraging? Right. You had something you were going to say about that, didn't you? One thing. Well, I think the most encouraging thing is if I understand that Christ, like going to John 10, right? I'm his sheep. He knows me. He lays down his life for me. And then you get to the end of uh, the verse 21, and no one will snatch me out of the Father's hand. Boy, that makes my salvation so secure. Yep. Right. And when I think about propitiation, redemption, uh, atonement, and reconciliation, and all of those things having been completely accomplished for me, right. Right. That again is so securing in mm. my salvation, in my, like, I can rest wholly secure. This is never leaving me. Yep. Yeah, that's it. I think it. I think it produces a sense of security. I think, um, in addition to that, as I mentioned earlier, you're reading the gospel accounts and it takes on a whole nother, to me, a dimension when you're yeah. when you're reading about Christ's work and you realize how specifically it was designed for yep. you, and how He knew the His sheep and you were one of them, um, and you, He was. Uh, you know, this is, and it's going to be effective for you. And you can always look back to the cross and know that it accomplishes in your life the purpose for for which he was sent, uh, that he will save his people, including you, from your sins. The one other final application I'll make, and because I think this relates specifically to the proclaiming of the gospel, right? Because this is where often people, the pushback, well, if it, we're all robots, what's the point of proclaiming the gospel and things like that? This uh, encourages gospel proclamation because we know what makes it effective, right? Mm-hmm. Again, it's not this, you know, I have to twist anybody's arm to make a decision to respond or anything like that. I know that if they're Christ's sheep, they will hear the gospel and they will respond, right? Uh, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not my own. I must go and get them. They will hear my voice and they will respond. So when I preach the gospel, all I have to be faithful to do is preach the gospel. And I Romans 1, right, it is the power of God unto salvation. And and then I, the burden is off of me right, <laughs> right, in yeah. many ways, you know. Yeah. So There was one other thing we were going to touch on, um, and we could do it very briefly. Okay. And that was... The question that people get in their minds is, what about the passages that seem right. to imply... The objections. Yeah, like the world right. is a big and one. And we could do a whole podcast on that. We could, but let's just let's Briefly just mention this. Yep. So when he says, um, you know, talking about the cross work of Christ for the world. And right, you're gonna John come, 3, 16. Right, and you come across some of those passages. I think that the most helpful way to start viewing those passages is in the context of... And and each one could be a little different with a little more a little different nuanced on what they yes. meant by that. But in the mind of the writer, I don't think when they're writing world, they're ever thinking every single person. Right. Um, remember now, the Jew Jews didn't really struggle too much with election to a degree because they they knew that's how they started with right. Abram yeah. and they they had no problem with God providing atonement for them and not for anyone else right, right. Uh, so there was no issue there when they're thinking of world I think they're oftentimes uh, 
thinking of people from all over the world, mm-hmm. right? Without not not people without uh, distinction, so to speak. Like there's no, you know, it's every single person, but people from all over the world. John uh, in or in Revelation five. The song in heaven, worthy are you to Jesus, uh, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and and people and nation. Mm. And you made them a kingdom and priests. Here's again that ransom language, Mm. ransomed them. It accomplished that for people, not for people not for every single tribe, everyone in it, or, or, or language and nation, but people from those. And so I think when they're thinking in terms of the world, usually they're thinking of people all over the world right. and not every single person. Yeah. So it's important to look at the context of those verses, right. right, that would be rising there. The other thing I'd add to that, and you could just go do a word search, right, like on that word world and look at how it's used. And I think one of the things you see uh, a lot is it's speaking more of like the world system, which people are enslaved to, sin and Satan, and Christ has come to redeem people out of that. Yeah. That thing. So, uh, yeah, so there's a lot more that could be said on this, but we are 45 minutes into this puppy. Wow, okay. So we probably better wind it down. Yep. And uh, if you have questions, send us your uh, your questions. We could love to discuss this further. Well, we hope the podcast has been helpful and encouraging to you. And as I mentioned, if you have questions, you can email us at thecalvarycast at gmail.com. If you're part of our church, you can come up and talk to us, give us a phone call, send us a text message. You can follow us on the Instagrams at thecalvarycast. And we would love to hear from you those ways. At Calvary, we exist for the glory of God, the good of his people, and the Great Commission. So until next time.